Welcome to the Tech Policy Podcast. I'm Ashkin Kazarian. On today's show, we have Professor Jan Daskal from American University Washington College of Law joining us to discuss her recently published CSIS report um, titled Low Hanging Fruit on what challenges law enforcement encounters um, and how to address these problems uh, when they collect digital evidence. Professor Daskal, thank you for joining us. Thank you. So how does the report that you just published recently um, differ from other discussions on encryption and related issues? So this report was designed specifically to put encryption issues aside. Um, CSIS had done an earlier report about some of the challenges posed by encryption And in the course of that report, which I was not involved with, they discovered that there were a range of other issues facing law enforcement in its ability to access digital evidence that were separate and apart from the encryption debate. So the purpose of this report was to focus on that range of other issues, um, recognizing that these are issues that are important to address, no matter how the encryption debate is ultimately resolved. So your report identified four broad issue categories that are relevant to law enforcement's capacity to leverage digital evidence. What are these categories? So there's questions about um, training, questions about knowledge, questions about resources and legal authorities. But really, I mean, kind of the headline from the report um, is what we found both in a series of qualitative interviews that I did along with my co-author, Will Carter, and in a as the in survey results um, based on a survey that we commissioned of state, local and federal law enforcement officials from across the country, is that The biggest problem that law enforcement has been facing is in identifying which service providers have data of relevance to their cases and then figuring out how to go about and accessing that data. I also came across this issue in your report that um, providers and law enforcement have a certain tension between them. Uh, what does this have to? What, what is the main problem here? Is it because uh, providers get too many requests from law enforcement? Is it because they're just very uh, stubborn about replying to those requests? Is it because law enforcement is confused about the way they send the requests, or is it all of the above? I don't know. So I think there's a there's a range. Of, of issues, and to some extent, I mean, the law enforcement and the tech community, their you know their interests are not fully aligned, and so some of that is just inherent in the different roles that the communities play. Um, but some of it is just a real credibility gap that I think results from insufficient knowledge and insufficient training, and also insufficient to some extent resourcing on the side of providers. Um, and so, you know, law enforcement describes a world in which providers. Um, um, are not, from their point of view, responding to requests um, with sufficient rapidity, that they are providing information in ways that are not readable, um, and that they are um, not um, making themselves sufficiently available to respond to questions and concerns. Um, Tech companies, on the other hand, tell a very different story of um, putting a lot of resources into responding to law enforcement requests, into working hard to comply with the requests, um, to reviewing those requests, um, to some extent getting requests that in their views are overbroad um, or unduly burdensome, and then um, responding in their view appropriately to those requests by 
by going back to law enforcement and saying we can't comply with the full range of things that you're asking for. So to some extent, the problem is a different perspective about what's appropriate. And to some extent, it's a problem of a lack of um, information sharing where law enforcement feels that they don't know who to go to for what data. Um, And so additional training and additional resources placed in that could potentially make a big difference. So regarding the type of assistant that the law enforcement needs the most, is is there uh, some type that you identified was like the most burning need? So you said training, you said information. So is it all kind of the same umbrella? So I think, I mean, I think that there's a real need, particularly on, um, with assistance to state and locals, to, to think carefully about the way in which law enforcement investigations are changing, and they rely so extensively on digital evidence um, in all types of cases. It's not just cybercrime cases or big, high-profile terrorism cases, but just about every case has some element that encompasses the need to access or the benefit, or would certainly aid law enforcement if they could access digital evidence, which raises really important questions that we should all be talking about as a policy matter in terms of what information should be available and what standards apply and who gets to make those decisions. But putting that all aside, I think there's general agreement that in certain categories, um, law enforcement ought to be able to access data, pursuant, particularly pursuant to a warrant based on probable cause issued by a judge, depending on the type of data, or pursuant to other standards, depending on what we're talking about. And in those situations, it seems that there's a real need to um, provide information to law enforcement about where to go to access that data. And there's a lack of digital literacy um, in some places. Um, There are also lots and lots of law enforcement officials across the country that are extremely digital literate and that are quite sophisticated in how they think through these issues. But there's a need to kind of level the playing field across the board. And that requires a number of things. It requires a kind of shift in how we think about this. Um, The analogy that we like to use in the report is a shift, is, is, is the fingerprint analogy. We don't expect all law enforcement officials across the country to know how to analyze and interpret fingerprints, but we do expect them to be trained about how to take them and to preserve them. And similarly here, there's a real need for kind of basic training about how to um, protect and preserve digital evidence, particularly in cases where there's devices found at the scene and other steps that can be taken. And then there's a need to provide expert assistance um, to law enforcement to help them figure out where to go to get evidence, what steps are taken, what are the procedural requirements, the legal requirements, and who has the relevant evidence, and then also to be able to interpret the evidence once it's been disclosed. So it doesn't necessarily get turned over in a format that's readable or obvious to law enforcement officials, and there needs to be the development and the dissemination of technical tools to be able to interpret the evidence that is returned. One of the main um, kind of instincts in DC is to ask, is there an agency that can take care of this? Is there a centralized agency or subdivision that is in charge of digital evidence in right now in the United States? So it's it's an issue. So there's there's lots and lots of different programs and initiatives at the state and local level, some of which are incredibly um, well done. Um, there is a sole national entity that's housed in the FBI called NDCAC that's kind of responsible for the 
the full range of training providing Indicac? NDCAC, NDCAC is the, is the acronym. Um, they provide training. They provide a 24-7 hotline. Um, they they help with the development and dissemination of technical tools. But their budget is under $12 million, which is woefully inadequate to deal with the 18,000 different state and local um, entities that In are In 2018, across- where... I don't know. I don't know this numbers, but my guess is half of the evidence is digital. Exactly. So yes, and in in, in fact, our survey report um, suggested that that law enforcement saying that they were having difficulties, not just the number of cases in which they had digital evidence, but they're having difficulties accessing digital evidence in about a third of their cases. So that's a really high number, um, and so. Um, one of the report's main recommendations is to adequately resource NDCAC to be able to better service the um, entities across the country and to authorize it um, and place it, house it with um, policy folks. So people who are thinking through kind of the trends, the long-term issues, the, um, the kinds of training that's needed, looking at the various grant programs that do exist and trying to rationalize them um, across different um, uh, different needs and different areas and so um, you know we think that that would make a big difference and help elevate the issue um, and provide the kind of assistance that seems critical in this area training obviously is such a cornerstone for this shift would you say that when we say law enforcement needs training, would you say that judges also need training? Because Absol- they're part of this puzzle, right? Yeah, absolutely. I and mean, I think judicial training to judges on judicial on digital evidence issues is critical in this area. It's critical in a whole host of other areas as well. And it's something that judges um, are asked to opine on and to rule on, particularly magistrate judges when they're given a warrant application. And there's a real need um, to increase digital literacy in the judicial branch as well. If I got a penny every time I heard a member of Congress say, I'm not a technologist, but I would not have need to have a job. Um, so we need training for judges and we need training for law enforcement. Um, would you say there is, um, there is an efficient way to do this training, not to disturb the regular um, flow of work, of just work hours and of just cases that they have to deal with? Is there a way of doing it? Because I remember um, I heard you talk about this a little bit and you were saying that some members of law enforcement, it's hard for them to travel or it's it's hard for them to take time off because there are so few resources locally. Mm-hmm. So a few things. So as I said before, with respect to the fingerprint analogy, I mean, training on basic digital evidence literacy should just be part of basic training across the country, state federal, local levels, and that should just be a part of, of, of basic training. Um, it's not realistic or practical or even makes sense to expect that all agents have kind of deep understanding or, or deep knowledge or the technical tools to interpret data that's disclosed. Um, so there's also a need to constantly train the experts that can then provide the assistance in particular cases. Um, one of the problems with a lot of the training programs that do exist is that they tend to operate, um, and many of them are extremely well done, but they tend to operate on kind of a model where um, law enforcement officials come to a place for several days or for a week um, and they get trained and they're provided in some cases um, actual technical tools that they can bring back to their offices, which is all um, 
an excellent model, except that the numbers are low. It's hard to, it costs a lot of money to bring people in for, for extended periods of time. It's hard for individuals to take time off of their other important activities in order to, to, to leave for a week or several days. And so one of the recommendations, and it's something that Endicac is already starting to do, is to develop um, training modules that can be pushed out so the trainers go um, out um, instead of bringing the, the officials in and, and doing more online as well. All right. So training is uh, a recommendation you obviously have. The other one was you said Indicac has only $12 million in funding. So I'm guessing to uh, make all of these changes and to have better training, there's more resources that need to come from federal budget, state budget. So a recommendation is to is to really kind of make, you know, Indicac the rather than have this be be decentralized across 50 different states to have a central repository um, that can kind of bring in the experts and can develop the technical tools once instead of 50 different times and disseminate them. So our recommendation is for Congress to to really step up and both authorize NDCAC to combine its mission with um, a policy mission as well that will will assess um, the needs. Um, you know, we, we did absolutely the best we could, um, but there's a, you know, the federal government has more um, insight and, and more of a bird's eye view into everything that's going on. So to assess what's going on, to assess what's working, to distribute money appropriately, um, and to combine those two things and to adequately resource um, these efforts. And the next question is for all the law students and lawyers out there. You guys also suggest reforming digital evidence rules, right? Um, do you mind in broad strokes giving us an idea of how that can be done? Yes, I mean, actually, that wasn't the key focus of our report. I mean, there, you know, there is a real need to update um, digital evidence rules. The the primary statute that at least governs a lot of what we talk about in this report is the Stored Communications Act, which was enacted before there was anything like a global internet, let alone cloud computing, let alone a lot of the things that are now so much a part of our daily lives. And um, Congress... Um, you know, there's a lot that Congress could do to update that law to reflect the modern reality, um, and particularly in the wake of the Carpenter case that was decided by the Supreme Court this summer, which left open a lot of critically important questions about how a range of different types of digital evidence is or is not protected in terms of the substantive and procedural rules that apply when law enforcement accesses it. So, so there's a real need for that, and there's a real need to consider those issues. Um, there's um, a lot that can and should be done, um, but the real point of this report and the real takeaway is that um, those are discussions and debates that have been going on for a very long time and will continue. The discussions and debates about encryption have been going on for quite some time and are likely to continue as well. And meanwhile, there's a lot that can be done um, with relatively little money and relatively few changes that can make a difference in terms of providing knowledge and resources and also on the part of the tech companies to um, adequately resource their law enforcement teams and ensure that they share the knowledge that's critical um, to law enforcement to be able to know what to ask 
ask for, which in turn will provide benefits to the providers because if law enforcement is better informed, they will make better tailored requests. And some of the, the concerns about that, I heard, that we heard from providers about overbroad requests will hopefully be reduced as a result. Well, you just led us to my next question about why providers should care. Uh, how does this affect them? So obviously, um, getting a better tailored request um, is less annoying, is my guess. Is there any other reason? It's less annoying. It's less burdensome. And I think, you know, in our discussions with providers, um, you know, they providers that, that at least the, the individuals that we spoke to, they see themselves as both protecting their customers' privacy interests and also um, helping, um, you know, inappropriate cases with lawful process. They, they see a role, an important role to play in ensuring that law enforcement has access to the information it needs, um, which is critical for, for individual security and privacy as well. And so, um, you know, providers have an interest in ensuring that the system works smoothly. Um, they have an interest in reducing the, the friction and the risk of litigation. And they have an interest in um, in educating law enforcement. So, so as you said, they get ta- more tailored, better appropriate requests, um, which in turn um, facilitates their own work as well. Not only everybody wins, but it also is just like the analogy in the name of your report, a low hanging fruit. So it's practically easier than a lot of other things. And it uh, will take off the tension between hopefully both the providers and the law enforcement and the consumers and providers and the law enforcement, because when the rules of a game are clearer, um, it's easier to co- to operate within them, right? So, I mean, importantly, just this week, Apple announced that it was actually making some changes consistent with the recommendations that we made in the report. So they've announced um, that they're going to be putting in place a team of trainers that are dedicated exclusively to engaging in this type of law enforcement training. And they're also putting in place an, an online portal for law enforcement, which will hopefully facilitate law enforcement's ability to make requests um, and to track those requests, as well as an authentication system to ensure that the person who's making the request is actually the law enforcement official that he or she claims to be. Well, if Apple has done the first step, I'm sure others will follow. Any last thoughts on um, on everything we've discussed? And obviously, if you want our listeners to come away with a few main ideas about your report, if they don't have time, maybe they're listening to us on their commute or maybe they're stuck on the metro. Um, what do you want them to remember? So again, I think the key issue is that there are a lot of there's been a lot of attention to the to questions around encryption and to the debate about whether or not we're going dark or we're in a golden age of surveillance. There's been lots of discussion about the need for um, legal reforms. All of those discussions are important. They will continue. They should continue. But meanwhile, we shouldn't lose sight of some relatively easy changes that can facilitate law enforcement cooperation with service providers in ways that also protect privacy and civil liberties um, and um, and and are things that um, I, I think have been endorsed by law enforcement officials and providers and should be um, 
helpful to all of the key stakeholders in this debate. And I don't think there is any, there would be any resistance to the changes you suggested from either side of the aisle, which happens very rarely. So we really are thankful for that. Um, before we wrap up, uh, we would love to hear more about your career and how you ended up doing what you're doing, because you're obviously a scholar, you're a law professor, you're an expert. I've encountered you at multiple panels and have learned from you and reading just the things you've published. Not that I've always agreed with you, but which is even better. Um, so how did you end up doing this area of law? Because obviously DC is a lawyer city, but every lawyer is different. Sure. So I, I started out, I mean, my career path um, could not have been predicted. I started out as a public defender here in Washington, DC, um, at the Public Defender Service of DC, and then moved at some point over to Human Rights Watch initially to work on criminal justice policy. And at the time, um, this was in the Bush administration years. There was a lot of work that the organization was doing on Guantanamo-related issues, and I got very involved in that, which led me to focus more on national security. Um, ended up in the administration, the Obama administration, in the national security division, so very different than working at Human Rights Watch. Um, and um, was mostly working, I, I was working on a range of issues, initially largely on detention-related issues, um, and then got increasingly interested and engaged in in some of the um, surveillance-related issues and started writing, once I left the Obama administration, started writing about, um, initially about the Microsoft Ireland case and then a bunch of other tech-related issues. So how different it is going from a public defender's office to a think tank, well, an NGO with, I guess, LCL, Human Rights Watch has, has activists part of it too, but then to an administration and then to teaching law students, that that's probably all four. You, you, you got the perfect lawyer bingo. You just need the law firm. Did you, did you do a law firm? <laughs> just gig? for summer jobs. Not, I, no, I, that still yeah. counts. That still counts. Okay, you have a, a lawyer bingo. You're good. So I like to say to my students that I bring a variety of perspectives to the table. And I think, um, you know, the, the switches, I mean, every, I've enjoyed everything I've done. And it's been um, really exciting to be able to work in a lot of different areas and from a lot of diff different perspectives. Um, and... I hope that it allows me to, to see a variety of sides of an issue more than I otherwise would be. And at least that's what I try and hope to try to teach my students. So someone asked me yesterday how I ended up doing cybersecurity uh, topics and issues. And I realized that I, and they said, oh, did you take a class in law school? And I realized that I never did. Um, I just started doing free speech and then I went to tech policy from there and then it just kind of all spiraled. Was it the same for you where you kind of were getting just this umbrella of issues and one would go from another? So national security turned into encryption, turned into, and what you did as a public defender was part of the criminal procedure expertise, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I say this to my students all the time. And I remember when I graduated from college, just being obsessed with wanting to know what I was going to do with my life and feeling like I had to figure it out. And there is no way that as a 22-year-old, I could have predicted kind of the twists and turns. And I think, I mean, the advice that I think is the most important advice is just to be open and be willing to try new things. And, um, and particularly, I mean, sometimes who you work with is as equally important as what you do. And so working in places that you feel good about with people that you trust and respect is, is I think, critically important at all times. Well, that's amazing. Thank you so much for sharing that. And we hope to have you back very soon. Thank you.
You can follow Tech Freedom on Facebook and Twitter at Tech Freedom. We're going to link to the report in our show notes. Please go ahead and read it. It's fascinating and very easy to read, even if you're not a lawyer. And please leave the show a review so others can find us. Thank you for listening. The Tech Policy Podcast is produced and distributed by Tech Freedom, a nonpartisan nonprofit think tank in Washington, D.C. To learn more about our work, make a tax-deductible donation, or find other episodes, find us online at techfreedom.org.